Good morning, church family. Good morning. Oh, thanks for that. Um, for those of you who do not know me, um, my name is Mary Getz, and I serve on the leadership team here at the TAB. And I am joining in on this series on believers. Um, the title that was given to me was Partying with Unbelievers, which is kind of exciting. Um, I, I got a word this morning as I was sitting here in worship, and I just want to put it out there. And then I'm hoping it will land when it needs to land, or it'll go away if it's not from Jesus. So um, I just feel like there is a level of discomfort in this space, in our transition, and in the space we're going to explore that asks us to do some introspection. So I just want you to sit in that discomfort. Sit in what does doing church this way in this new format look like? Why might it be uncomfortable for me? Why was I comfortable before and I'm uncomfortable now? And then as we walk through partying with unbelievers, what makes me uncomfortable in, in my relationships and at my table in um, just reclining with unbelievers like Jesus did? Because if I could sum up this um, sermon in like a sentence, it would be Jesus partied with unbelievers and so should you. And if that's all you get today, I am perfectly happy. <laughs> um, I don't have very many slides. I have about four, and most of it is just the scripture. So we are going to explore Mark 2, 15 through 17 today. Um, so you can go ahead and turn to that in your Bibles or on your devices, and I believe it will be on the screen for you. Yes. Okay. Mark 2, 15 and 17. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Um, and then the next slide, I want to. We oftentimes try to fit our sermons into the the grand narrative of Scripture. So. The Bible is a story that God has given to us to tell us about himself, tell us about his plan, and tell us about ourselves and our purpose inside of it. Um, so we know in the Gospels we see the coming of Jesus. He lands on the scene. He initiates his kingdom. So this passage fits in that great narrative of Jesus coming to inaugurate his kingdom and to establish himself as Savior of the world. So this fits perfectly in that. However, in this, Jesus does something a little bit crazy, and he redefines for us holy living. Because in this passage, we have people who think they have it right, and Jesus drops a bomb on them and says, this ain't it. I didn't come here to have dinner with you. I came here to seek and save the lost. Um, so those are the two narratives we're kind of operating in in this passage. Jesus intentionally called and placed himself in the company of those he came to save. Um, I want to give you a little bit of context to this dinner. 
So this is chapter 2. We're like just getting into Mark. Jesus has come onto the scene. We've seen baptism. We've seen him proclaimed um, as the Savior. His kingdom has been inaugurated, and he's started to do his earthly ministry. There's been miracles. There's been healings. There's been the healing of the paralytic man. There's been his temptation. Um, So his power is being manifest through miracles, and that is gathering crowds. So at the time that Mark 2 happens, Jesus has actually been so inundated with throngs of people, he has started to go to cities that are less populated just to get away from the crowds. Mark 2 happens, he comes back to Capernaum and again is preaching and teaching the gospel and he is followed by throngs of people. And this is the context that this chapter is happening. So he's teaching, he's preaching and teaching, he's walking along, many many people are following him because they're seeing the manifestation of the kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And this is going to be a plug to go watch The Chosen. Because the scene that happens right before this chapter is so powerful. I made Corey watch it with me. I cried. It's like three minutes long on YouTube. It's called The Calling of Levi. Because the dinner that Jesus is at is at Levi's house, who is a tax collector. And in The Chosen, the scene is so powerful. One, they make Levi just a super cool character in the show. Like, I love him. Everything about him is everything. Um, But Jesus is walking along with his disciples and he turns to Levi in his, his tax collector booth, and there's a Roman guard outside. And he looks at him, and you see Levi acknowledge that Jesus is turning around and looking at him. And Jesus says, follow me. And Levi does. He gives his keys to the Roman guard. He walks away, and in the scene, you see the Roman guard saying, what are you doing? You live better than any Jew here because of the money you make corruptly by being a tax collector, and you're going to follow the street preacher, it's so powerful. Please YouTube it and watch it this afternoon. I just, and watch the whole show. But um, it is so powerful because we see Jesus call Levi. Levi comes out to follow Jesus. Um, Luke does a little bit more thorough job of explaining, like, he left everything. He left this good cushiness given to him by the Roman Empire through his job to follow a street preacher that's just dropped onto the scene. Um, And then he hosts, in that clip, Jesus says, we're going to have a party. And Levi says, oh, I'm not usually like a popular person at parties. Um, People really don't like me. I'm a pariah in the Jewish community. And Jesus says, well, you're the one hosting the party. So that shouldn't be a problem. Um, So they have a dinner at Levi's house. Some commentators um, talk about the group they're saying Levi wanted to share this Jesus and this gospel with his friends. And I believe that can be the case. Um, but there could also be a, a subtle nuance here where um, Levi was not liked by his community. So his circle of friends came from within the misfits and the people that weren't really liked. And so it was more likely that that was his crowd. Like, the people at his party were his friends, and they were not liked. Um, And this is the context that the Pharisees are observing. Um, So it says, his colleagues who, as sinners... It's interesting, tax collector and sinner 
are like synonymous in like their eyes. They're just like, these guys did bad things to good people with their money. We kind of lump them in that little group. Um, they're shunned by leading figures in the community. Um, their work made them a part of a sub-community that had high-quality social relationships within itself, uh, but low-quality relationships with the communities around them. So this is where Jesus finds himself. And if you read Mark 2 in the ESV, it um, uses that word that Jesus was reclining at the table. And uh, Corey and I went out on a date, and we, I was like, ooh, let's look at the sermon I'm supposed to do together, because that's what we should do on a date. Um, so we looked at the passage, and Corey was like, ooh, that word recline is interesting. It's interesting because it kind of speaks of a posture. Even though that was the posture of the day, reclining at the table together, tables were low, they weren't sitting on chairs. Um, Jesus isn't acknowledged as being set apart in this setting. Jesus is reclining with the rest of the people at the table. Um, The people who are setting themselves apart in this scenario are the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Um, So mealtimes and customs in Jewish culture communicate a lot. Um, They communicate nonverbal messages relating to interpersonal relationships. So the fact that Jesus found himself reclining at the table with unbelievers communicates a nonverbal message about his relationship with them. He was not setting himself apart from them. He was engaging in community with them. Jesus sat as any other would at Levi's table. So I want us to... Um, There's a painting of the calling of Levi. There's a few I was going to put up, and I didn't. But I want us to imagine a painting of this scenario, okay? Uh, A dinner gathering, sitting at the table. Jesus, almost indistinguishable from the people he's gathered with, because he's joining in this dinner party. And then a group of people who are setting themselves apart and observing and judging what they see before them. So this is the image I have in my mind. I'm sure somebody's painted it somewhere, I hope. If not, somebody paint this picture. (laughs) Um, So there's two categories of people in this passage. The people engaging in a meal together and the people observing and judging. And we know up to this point that the Pharisees and religious leaders were on a mission to expose Jesus as a fraud uh, because of his... What he was doing kept contradicting what they believed the Savior would do and kept contradicting the laws of the day. So Jesus, they're walking around going, wait a minute, wait a minute, why is he doing this? Earlier they questioned why he would heal on the Sabbath. Okay, now Jesus is eating dinner with people that we would never associate with because they're bad people. What is going on? Um... And this reminded me of a story from college. I went, to, um, I went to a Bible school in Chicago, which unpacking that is a whole sermon on its own. But um, I was in a, a training for resident assistants. So we were being trained how to help love on and lead a floor of men or women at this Bible college. And there was a, a floor <laughs> that was known on the guy's dorm, known for maybe not 
being having the best behavior and maybe being the most in trouble and the biggest rebels on campus. Um, my husband happens to come from that floor. Um, but their RA, who's this wonderful guy, um, was talking about the idea of how oftentimes people will unify together around almost anything, and it's not always holy, even if in an, it's not. So he said, you can lead this floor. They love to be unified around something, something that, they, that they're standing for, like, oh, fight the system, fight the, I don't know, student life guide, um, whatever. Um, but you can enter into the spaces, and people will unify around things. It's not always holy. And this is where we see these Pharisees and religious leaders. They have unified around religious law and tradition, and it is not holy. And Jesus is going to redefine for them what holiness is because he is the manifestation of holiness. Jesus is holy. Jesus is set apart. And Jesus is sitting at the table with the sinners and the tax collectors, which for me makes me ask, maybe, if I'm a Pharisee standing on the outside, maybe my definition of holiness is missing in the mark just a little bit. Um, So Jesus made a point to keep company with these people. Um, And I think that this... We often rag on the Pharisees. We often give them a hard time because it's really easy for us to see where they got it wrong because Jesus really tells us. Um, And then sometimes we do a good job of realizing, um, well, maybe, maybe some of them were seeking to honor Jesus and they just missed the mark. And that's where I kind of want to flesh this out for us because in our relationships with unbelievers... Um, if you've grown up in the church or if you've sought to seek Jesus well and to honor Jesus well, there may have been decisions that you made that you thought were honoring to Jesus that missed the mark. Um, I can think of an illustration that I was given in youth group years ago. Um, and the youth pastor pulled a chair into the middle of the youth room you guys might have seen this, you may or not. And one youth was supposed to stand on the chair, and one youth stood on the floor. And the youth on the chair was a youth who believed in Jesus, and the youth on the floor were a sinner. I don't know, an unbeliever. I don't know who they were supposed to be. And the illustration was, the person on the chair was supposed to pull up um, the unbeliever. And if you try this, you can go try this at home. It's extremely difficult, if not impossible, to pull that person up off the floor. Then the unbeliever was supposed to pull the believer down. Super easy to do, no matter how big you are. It's pretty easy to be pulled off a chair. This illustration was given to us to talk about growing in spiritual wisdom and understanding with who, with who we surrounded ourselves with. Um, knowing that there's temptations of this world that will be pulling at us. Very valuable. But it also sort of set this mindset in me of like, oh, shoot, then I can't hang out with unbelievers because they're going to pull me off the chair every time. Like, it's so easy to pull me off the chair. I just can't. So I think as we traverse through this passage, Jesus is asking us just to think about what barriers 
may have been created in our heart and our mind, even in the church, even out of an attempt to honor God, that have not allowed us to be in relationship with the unbelievers around us? What barriers exist between us and the unbeliever that don't need to be there? If I am walking in all spiritual wisdom and understanding and seeking God, I am able to sit at the table with the unbeliever without being like, oh my goodness, is it going to rub off on me? You are a believer in Jesus, and you live with the wisdom and discernment of the Holy Spirit. Um, Another thing that I think this is asking is, I have a hard time believing that Jesus walked and preached the throngs to the throngs gathered them into this dinner and then code switched to stop talking about the gospel because of who he was with this is a barrier that I've identified in my own life um, that's really easy to do especially depending on if you work your workplace um, it's really easy and we brought this up in our previous teachings on unbelievers Um, about why do I talk differently about Jesus in this context at the tab, in my missional community, even on mission. And then in the workplace, I feel the need to kind of buffer that um, or code switch. Like if someone were to ask me a question and I know they're an unbeliever, and my answer to my believing friend would be like, oh, Jesus told me this this morning. Um, But in my unbelieving friend, I'd be like, oh, I was just thinking that this might be wise. It's super easy to do. We do it out of sometimes a desire to protect Jesus. I don't know. Like, we're afraid if we talk about him, we're going to do it wrong. Sometimes to protect our relationship. And I just want to give us the freedom to examine why we feel the need to walk into a situation and code switch um, and challenge us. I think that's the biggest challenge. Joel brought it up. I believe it too. You know, Brooke Witterman does a wonderful job of this, of just saying, Jesus told me this. (laughs) Um, So I imagine Jesus um, sitting at this table with the tax collectors and sinners just preaching the good news and continuing that conversation because his desire for them to encounter the good news was greater than his desire to not make it uncomfortable at the table. These people came into this space because they were drawn to him. There were probably many persons of peace, like Brooke talked about last week there, that were drawn to Jesus, didn't quite understand his message, yet wanted to sit at the table and wanted to know more. Um, And I can imagine Jesus' conversation continued to just spill out of truth in the love of the kingdom. Um, So verse... um, So I just want us to trace back when we experience a barrier between us and the unbelievers around us. I want us to trace back to the root of that barrier. It could have come from within the church in an attempt to honor God well, or it could be a personal barrier, uh, a discomfort. But I want us to sit in that discomfort today and examine it. Why would my conversation be different? Why would I be uncomfortable? Why would I limit? Why would I not sit at this table? What is at the root of that? Because at the root of the Pharisees in this story, 
at its best, it's people trying to honor God and just coming into um, like butting up against what they knew, to, what they had been taught. At its worst, <clears throat> it is a group of people who view their righteousness as where God or Jesus on earth should be one. Like, we have been so righteous, Jesus. Why are you not at a dinner with us? We have done it right. How in the world could you, um, you know, associate with unbelievers? But you have to ask yourself where Jesus is in this picture. He is not on the observing side. He is in it, reclining at the table with the unbelievers and sharing the good news of the gospel. Um, In verse 17, he states it so clearly when they ask. He says, I have not come for you. I have come for the sinners. It's not, in like the kindest way, it's not about you. How grateful Jesus' heart must have been for people who were already trying to follow him, but that is not why he came. Our inheritance in Jesus is a daily gift of being able to step deeper into relationship with God, take steps of obedience. That's our inheritance. But that is not our mission. Our mission is still to, to the unbeliever. So I think we, we have to hold those things. As I work through this, we have to hold those two things in balance. That our inheritance is, for the rest of eternity, I will take steps of obedience that will lead me into greater freedom, greater deliverance, more spiritual wisdom and understanding. I will get closer to Jesus for the rest of eternity. But that never trumps my mission, which is to share that good news with the lost. So what is this for us? What does this mean practically? Um, Mark 2.17 informs one of our values here at the tab, the unbelievers, and it says, In our structures and strategies, we, without hesitation, prioritize the lost over the found, the sick over the well. So as the tab, we prioritize the lost. No matter what program we are um, engaging in, it is still at our heart a priority to seek the lost. Um, So it's in our DNA. Um, I want to ask you what barriers exist in your prioritization of the lost. It could be some of the things I mentioned before. It could be something else. Um... So one, I think, I think I put this in this slide. I don't know. It's the very last one. Um, this passage informs us that like Jesus, we are to recline at the table. We need to ask ourselves, where does my relationship with unbelievers stand? Are they at the table? Am I at their table? And if we struggle with that, we need to ask ourselves why. If part of our DNA is, is prioritizing sharing the good news with the lost, am I sitting at the table? Am I sitting at their table? 
Who fills the seats at my table? Where do I find myself sitting at the table? Where has God called me to be in relationship? Um, We must prioritize the loss, praying for Jesus to share his heart with us. So, like Jesus, we recline at the table. Um, Like Jesus, our holiness abounds where love abounds. This was something that was so beautifully fleshed out in some of the commentaries that I read. Um, Because it's that beautiful balance that Jesus exhibits in this passage of being holy and passionately pursuing the lost. Because I, I, the people who were accusing Jesus of not being holy were the Pharisees and the religious leaders. But in that moment, Jesus was fully holy and fully engaging in relationship with the lost. Um, so our holiness abounds where the love of Jesus abounds. And that can exist in relationship and in community. And when we party with unbelievers... When we hang out with unbelievers, when we are reclining at the table, we are um, exhibiting the character of Jesus. We also need to ask for the compassion of Jesus. Um, I recently watched a teaching that was beautiful on four important words of scripture, and I want to pull out two for us today. Um, one was tov miod, which is the Hebrew phrase that God used when he created the earth. And it means that what he created, tov miod means what he created was forcefully good. It was so good. All worked to bless all. The very goodness that God was observing... And this, is, this was the phrase used in the sermon, and it was so beautiful, I couldn't have come up with it by myself. The very goodness that God was observing was the overwhelming wellness in all of the relatedness in creation. God looked at the world that he had created and said, everything is whole and everything is working together. Now that we know that sin fractured that wholeness within creation and relationship was fractured. Relationship was fractured between us and God. Relationship was fractured between us and one another, us and creation. Our interrelatedness to one another and our ability to steward that creation was fractured with sin. One of the other words she brought up was salem. And it was um, the term used to identify that man was created in the image of God. I trust, trust me, there's a point coming here, I promise. <laughs> so we have this forcefully good creation. And it is forcefully good because it is operating in relationship wholly with itself. We have sin fracture that perfect relatedness. Then we have creation, man created in God's image. Do you know when that was set onto the scene, when the writers wrote that down, that revealed that all man was created in the image of God. That was groundbreaking, because up until they got to read that, it was certain people reflected God, and we just went to them. 
So the kingdom on earth, as it is in heaven, means the restoration of the relatedness of creation. The restoration of that wholeness. It means me seeing that all man was created in God's image and longing to be back in relationship with that person and longing for that image bearer to be back in relationship with God. And this <laughs> this should burden our hearts. The last couple Sundays, um, I missed a few, but when we've been preaching on this series, I have been brought to tears as we explore our relationships with unbelievers because I have had this thing within my heart developed to see that those image bearers that I know who are not walking with Jesus know Jesus. And let me tell you, friends, I am a selfish sinner. So there is no way that that compassion in my heart was self-motivated. There's no, I am not like patting myself on the back for crying about this. I am saying that my pursuit of God, my pursuit of this holiness that the Pharisees were trying to attain, in that pursuit, God has shared his compassion with me. The tears when we cry over others, that is partnering in the compassion that Jesus has given us. I am partnering with God in that. So we do not have to work up the desire to see unbelievers saved. We have to seek God and ask for his compassion to be initiated in our hearts. It is him who will initiate in us. It is him who will cause us to weep on behalf of the unbelievers around us. It is not something that we work up. It is not something that we attain. Um, We need to ask God to help us see his image in every single individual he has created and brought into relationship with us. As we pursue him, he will cultivate this within our heart. Um, And people will be drawn to that. He will give us the compassion, and that is where we go back to Brooke's sermon and say, okay, God has stirred that up in me. God's given me some sort of compassion for the people around me. Who is, who keeps coming around? I have, we had this, we had relationships um, with our neighbors in our neighborhood. And I remember sitting on the couch once. They would just, they would bring us food. They would bring, uh, there was one time when we had a foster placement. And the next day, we had a gift for the new foster baby on our porch from this, this woman. Um, anytime our cars needed fixed, they would help fix our cars. I mean, just, just, I just remember looking at Corey and being like, what in the world did we do to make them so kind to us? And we didn't do anything because we were definitely like, they were way higher on the giving and we were higher on the taking in that relationship. But I was just like, they, maybe they see Jesus in us. Maybe this is something I need to pay attention to. Um, Because we're not all that great. I have not bought her a gift. We cannot fix his car. We cannot use the snowblower to blow the snow off of our car. We haven't done those things. Why do they keep coming back? And it's Jesus. I also remember I went to um, Russia when I was 14 on this missions trip. Now, we were supposed to go and uh, do these, like, crazy drama scenes and then 
after you did the drama, people are supposed to come to Jesus. Well, they found out in Russia that just didn't work. They didn't like it. They didn't like it. So they told this group of 14, 16, 17-year-olds, instead, you are going to go to a country that you have no knowledge of, you do not know the language, and you are just going to witness to people on the streets. And I remember being like, oh my gosh, what in the world? I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, so all of us, you know, we, went, we, we got trained in some ways of sharing the gospel. We flew over to Russia. Um, we ate peanut butter and jelly every day, which was heartbreaking. Um, and we had translators. And we went out on the streets, and we shared the gospel with people there. And I'm sharing this story for two reasons. Because I was, I was typing this up. I was like, oh my goodness, God was teaching me this back then. I didn't even realize it. Because one thing I kept getting in trouble for was trying to share Jesus with, like, the grandmas that I kept coming. Like, the old people that I would encounter on the street, I just wanted to talk to them and share Jesus with them. And our translator kept stopping me, saying, no, no, no. They are too set in their ways. They will not come to Jesus. And I was enraged. (laughs) But I was 14, and what could I do? Um sitting with that now, I'm like, oh my goodness, look at God sharing his compassion for people in Russia to a 14-year-old who couldn't speak to them. And then, um, I remember we, there was one, we went to the skate park, and there were a bunch of, like, uh, young men skating around, doing tricks, and we were, we were talking to them, and I remember this young guy kept coming up to us, and be like, who are you? There's just something about you guys. You guys just seem so kind and, like, good. Um, he's like, I know you can't eat, like, I know you don't even understand what I'm saying. Like, they're translating to this. He's like, he's like, I just, you, I just, like, keep wanting to come back to you guys. I, I, I can keep, there's something about you. I just want to be around you. And back then, we were like, oh, that's weird. Um, I don't know. Can I go through the four steps of salvation with you? But that was a person of peace. There was Jesus inside of us, and he was drawn to that. And looking back, I'm like, oh, my goodness. That is a person of peace. That is what God was doing in that moment. Um, So my testimony to you is this. Jesus will share his heart with you. And as you pursue him and his mission, people will be attracted to Jesus within you. Okay, so it's not that we are just sitting here waiting for them to come to us. But as we are going out and actively learning about Jesus, we are talking with Jesus. We are getting closer with him. He is sharing himself with us. And that, there is a testimony in that that is attractive to people who are drawn to him. I'm going to share with you another story. Joel said to share stories, so just, I won't keep us too late. But I remember once we were um, in a missional community gathering and we were out on the streets just singing like worship songs and I remember out of the corner of our eye we just saw like someone come Um, we were I think we were on the corner where the lab is right now John was playing his guitar and we're all just singing worship songs and out of the corner of our eye we just see someone come and they like linger a little bit then they they come a little closer and then they just kind of like stand there and then by the end they're just sitting on the grass like just hanging out And I remember Joel sitting next to him and just talking with him. And he was like, man, I just want to be around this. 
He's like, I don't I, I know I don't really belong with this group. I know you don't know who I am, but I just want to be around this. Um, the, the spirit was ministering to him, and he just wanted to be around it. And so you know what we did? We just let him hang out with us. Um, and that was someone in our community that we know again and again has been just drawn to the presence of Jesus in whatever capacity it was exhibited. He just could not help but want to be closer to Jesus. So Jesus will share his heart with you. People will be attracted to it. And we are to bear witness to the gospel. That is the practical application of this. We are to be in relationship with unbelievers. We are to be bearing witness to the goodness of God in those relationships. Um, And uh, I just want to encourage you... Because I think that some of us may have grown up in the church and, 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 you know, wrestling through how to share the gospel can be intimidating. It can be, maybe you've seen it done badly. Um, I have loved this language of bear witness that's come up in our community again and again. Because what, this is the basic, like, I can bear witness to my relationship with Jesus. I can bear witness when someone says, oh man, fostering is so hard. I can't, how do you do that? My answer is Jesus every time. I don't care who they are. They're like, oh, how do you, like, how do you do that? I'm like, Jesus. And they're like, oh, okay. Sometimes that leads to more conversations, sometimes not. Um, I can bear witness that I once lived under debilitating anxiety and I no longer did because my Jesus healed me. Like if you have been healed, you can bear witness to your healing. If you have been delivered, you can say, man, I was in bondage. I lived under such shame. And now I walk free of that because of Jesus. Like that takes two seconds to bear witness to those things. Um, but can be the door that allows people to understand, well, why, what is it in them that is different? It's like, I am bearing witness to the goodness of God in my story. And I want to invite you into that. I'm going to go to you. I'm going to party at your table. And I'm going to bear witness to what God has done in my life. Um, yeah, that's it. <laughs>